Well, hello, my friends. If we get to meet, my name's Nick. It's wonderful to be here with you this evening. Talking about fasting. Wow. What a nice way to start church. End of January. Come to this, this sense of, of giving up food. and It does, might feel a little jarring. I'm not sure if, if it's normal for you to come to a church and think like, oh, this is the time when there's so many visitors and we're talking about spiritual practice of fasting. This is a little bit intense. If you are a visitor, we don't talk about this every week, I promise. But maybe it feels a little jarring in a way that shows we're missing something. Maybe fasting shouldn't be such a foreign concept to begin a new year as a church with. Maybe fasting is something that for many of us is unfamiliar for a reason that we need to deal with in this year of spiritual renewal as we seek after God. You see, Jesus, when he, he looks at all of us, to anyone who wants to believe in him, he says, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Strong words. We believe in the grace of Jesus that looks at us in our worst and says, I love you. There is nothing you must do but be loved by me. But we also believe in a costly grace where Jesus says, but once I have you and you are mine, your life is not your own. And so self-denial must characterize the heartbeat of a Christian spirituality. I'm not very good at (laughs) self-denial. I don't know about you. I want what I want when I want it, yeah? And I wonder if perhaps we don't even realize how much we're like puppies who have been trained to to long for the things that we want and to have them when we want them. Self-gratification, instant gratification, they are the norm of our moment. You can have what you want when you want it, and there are no issues, and so you get accustomed to it. And it starts to find its way into our spiritual life. So fasting might feel so foreign because self-denial doesn't really constitute much of what it means for us to follow Jesus. And yet, fasting is very much embedded in the testimony of Scripture. You think, what? Isn't it just one of those Old Testament things we kind of left behind, like animal sacrifice and the weird... No, no. Jesus, Jesus just spoke about it twice in our readings. It's, it's a part of the New Testament Scripture. Okay, well, yeah, maybe we don't really need it. Maybe it's one of those optionals. Well, uh, not really. Christians have practiced it for all of church history up till about the last hundred years in the Western world, at least. It's been a normal part of what it means to seek after God. So what are we missing? For all sorts of reasons, I wonder if we've lost this practice at a time that we need it most. If you were here last week, we talked about silence and solitude, and I think this is another one of those, those things that feels a bit weird and unfamiliar out there, and yet is so important for us to seek Jesus, especially in the time that we find it. So to flip, to flip it over to the positive, what if in this year of spiritual renewal, this is a missing, pivotal puzzle piece? There's a lot of things that we're going to do and talk about and think about and hopefully practice in the way that we seek after God with our lives, what if fasting, because it's so unfamiliar, and maybe a little different, what if it's actually the thing that we need most? Hopefully it makes sense why I think that in a moment. But often, you know, when we, when we are seeking to see something different in our lives, we need to turn and change the way that we're functioning. Maybe fasting is an important part of Christian spirituality that, that hasn't yet made its way into our souls and into our relationship with the Father. And so, that's what we're going to talk about today. 
You might know that our pastor Paul, he's, he's been in bed with a lot of pain in his body, so I'm, I'm feeling in for him. So I thought I'd channel a bit of Paul Dale for you. I got the four Ps of fasting. We're going to go with some alliteration today. I'll never be as masterful as Paul, but here we go. Four Ps of fasting, the purpose of fasting. We're thinking about fasting and our bodies. I wonder if part of why we don't understand fasting is because we also don't really know what to do with our physical bodies when it comes to being a Christian. For most of us, the way we would define ourselves would be by the things that we feel and believe and think within. Our consciousness and our inner self is given the priority of who we are. And these bodies are really kind of just meat sacks that we're carried around in as we go. We probably wouldn't use that language, but, but if we go too far, that's what we can start to think about ourselves. We read beautiful scripture and maybe go a little too far. So 2 Corinthians 5.1, it's going to come up on the screen. It's a beautiful piece of scripture, and I hope it helps you. But we can't go too far. For we know, this is Paul the Apostle speaking, that if the earthly tent we live in, these bodies, is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. You know, I don't know what you experience in your day-to-day life. Maybe some aches and pains and creaks. Maybe you've got profound illness and difficulty. This is, this is a comfort. Because the reality is that these are broken bodies. They're not what they're meant to be. They're not supposed to just live for a few years and eventually give up on us. That, that was never the intention for the human body, and yet it, it happens to be the case. And so Paul is saying, even if your earthly tent disappears on you, guess what? The Lord has something far greater. Now, we hear that good, good message, and we go, so the body is unimportant. It's not true. That's not what he's saying. We start to think of heaven, and we're thinking there's some nice ethereal harps in the sky, and we're sort of ghosts floating from from cloud to cloud, and, and there's this sort of uber-spiritual picture that we can start to like conceive of when we start to think of heaven. And yet the, the picture of heaven commonly described in the New Testament and in the Old is of the new heavens and the new earth, effectively what is already here taken, restored, and made perfect as it was meant to be. Not this thing off in the distance that you've never heard of before. Sometimes we get scared of eternity because it seems so foreign and out there. But the biblical picture is, is the way the world was already made, but made as it was meant to be. And that's the same thing for you and me. We aren't going to just leave our, our bodies down in the dirt and then ascend up into heaven like a spirit. Because look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? The eternal word who was there in the beginning, 1.14 in the book of John says, the word became flesh, meet Zach, that's my translation, and made his dwelling among us. Now that wasn't just a little concession so that he could go to the cross, finally carry the penalty for sin, die in a human body, and then finally when he goes down, resurrection means sort of like mist evaporating into the skies if he would disappear forever. No, no, no. When Jesus is raised from the dead... You see Jesus in a body. He's still a man. He is the God-man. And so when Thomas is, is talking to his buddies, and he's like, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Gee, nah, he's dead. I believe it when I see it. And Thomas comes right up to him. And he says, hey, Thomas. Sorry, Jesus comes right up to him. Hey, Thomas, just put your hand in here. This is where they did it. This is the wound. It's not that Jesus is still in a body as if he got like an upgrade to some new, better model. It's his body. 
but it's been raised from the dead and it's been restored and made new. There's points at which he kind of like floats through a wall, I think. I kind of want to experience that. It seems cool. But, but for, for all intents and purposes, we meet Jesus in a body and the same is true for us. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul speaking about the resurrection. He says, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It's an earthly tent, but apart from being thrown away, it is raised imperishable. It's, it's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Your body matters. You don't just have a body. You are a body. But the biblical anthropology, to get, get a little nerdy on you, what does it mean to be a human from Scripture? You are a body, a soul, and a spirit. Those are sort of the three categories that come forth as we think about what it means to be a person. And the body is something that will continue. Now, we know to not do bad stuff with our bodies, but do we know that our bodies are actually a good that when, when the Lord thought of you and made you uniquely, fearfully and wonderfully made you are, he's not just talking about your personality as much as that is essential to who you are. He's also talking about the body that you're in. And that is part of why he restores that body into the resurrection to come. The, the principle that helps me is you come to 1 Corinthians 6. Paul, the apostle, he's again, he's talking about sexual immorality, the, the not-to-dos of your body, but he gives you the principle. This is incredible. He says, do you not know that your bodies, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? I can't give you the mechanics, the spiritual mechanics of the, the presence of the Spirit in your body, but I can point you to this important verse that, that you, if you believe in Jesus, are filled with the presence of God. And not just in some abstract way, but He has made your body His temple the place where you dwell. Our bodies matter. Why am I telling you all of this? This isn't a sermon on the body. It's a sermon on fasting. Why? Because fasting matters because your body matters. We, we get that we should do spiritual stuff for God. We sing from our hearts. We pray from our spirits. And we, we read Scripture and engage with God in our mind. But how we engage with God with our body matters as well, not just on the negative of the bad things we do, of the positive. And so hence, fasting is a spiritual practice testified in Scripture where we don't just turn with our inner self towards God, but we turn towards God with our whole self, body, soul, and spirit. We'll, we'll look at a few examples in a moment, but prayer and fasting are, are often coupled in Scripture. They're, they're usually intertwined, and it makes sense when you start to consider the, the person. The soul is reaching out to God with your inner self, and fasting is, is much the same, but turning your body towards God. By intentionally allowing a hunger to build within us, we turn that hunger over to a greater hunger, to have more of Him we bear willingly the burden of this, this, this desire or this pain so that we can say, I don't want to satisfy just those bodily desires. I want to satisfy my whole self in you, God. That is what fasting is. Perhaps we've lost it because we don't really know what to do with our bodies, but perhaps we need to reclaim it because there's a facet of our, our humanity that we aren't necessarily engaging with as we seek God. Now, this is an important point to make a disclaimer is fasting just about food? 
The answer is no. You can absolutely, and for many of us, should not fast food because it is not helpful. It's actually doing damage to us. Fasting, here's my principle, fasting is not about harm. Fasting is about hunger. Cultivating that, that pang, that longing, that desire within us for something else that we can intentionally cultivate so that we can turn towards God. You might just be physiologically not safe to give up food. You might be underweight. You might have a medical condition. You might be struggling with some level of an eating disorder now or in the past. You might just simply have an unhealthy relationship with food. And, and all sorts of reasons might come forward where this is actually not a helpful hunger towards God, but a damaging harm that harms you and your body or harms your relationship with God. This should not necessarily be your expression, giving up food. But there are all sorts of ways that we can seek this with God. Because what are we doing? We're trying to engage our bodies in abstaining from something that we feel the weight of so that we can turn to God. You could give up your morning coffee. God forbid. (laughs) I think a helpful rule of thumb is when I ask you to give something up and you feel that, that's a good indicator that we're hitting on something. Because the intention is to say, I will not be tethered primarily to the desires of this world, instead I will trace them all to the one who made them and find the giver of all good. I want to feel a bit of this hunger that I can feel in this world because I want to hunger after him primarily and satisfy myself in him. So should you fast food? Maybe. Should you not fast food? Maybe. Please be careful. Fasting is not about harm, it's about hunger. And that will make sense because the second P is the principle of fasting. I found a single psalm that just beautifully captures this. Psalm 105, verse 4. It's worth memorizing just because it's awesome, but I think this captures fasting. Psalm 105, verse 4 says this. Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. Again. Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. We are tempted to carry in ourselves everything that we need to conquer the world. We love to rely upon our own ability. We love to have control over our lives. But the Christian heartbeat is to not be in control, but to look to the Lord and His strength, not our strength. That's what we're doing in fasting. We're just really revealing to ourselves what's already true, that that we can't be and have everything that we need. We actually have a greater need, and that is Him. We must live in the Lord and His strength. And so what is fasting? Here it is, four words. Seek His face always. It's an intentional, bodily, spiritual practice where Christian people seek the face of God. How's that? That's a simple statement. There'll be all sorts of examples and different facets that come out as we think about a biblical picture of fasting, but, but if it's biblical fasting, this should be at the center, that we are seeking His face always. Again, this is why it's not about harm. God has no need for us to fulfill ritual or ceremonial or religious observation. He just wants us, and He's already loved us. We're not doing anything to earn His favor. We are the people of God seeking the face of God. So our two readings helpfully pull this out. So if you've got your Bible, open back up to Matthew chapter 6, and you'll see Jesus in the the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe the most important teaching that he gives on our spirituality of living in the kingdom of God. He touches on in chapter 6 three separate tangible practices. He talks about giving, 
He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting. Uh, These might be taught particularly because the Pharisees were stuffing it up for the rest of us, and he really wanted to correct that. That might have been part of it. Or it could be because these are pillars that constitute a huge part of what it means to live after God in this world. I mean, I might not have chosen those three if that's the case, but, but for Jesus, he turns his attention there. He talks about giving, he talks about prayer, then he talks about fasting. Verse 16, when you fast, pause, <laughs> not if you fast, not when you decide to dabble and give it a go every now and again, He's speaking to a whole host of people in their Jewish seeking after Yahweh, and he says, when you fast, you're already doing it. It's already a part of how you seek and live with God. You read through the Old Testament, you realize it's, it's everywhere. Fasting is a part of what it means to seek God. It really is. And Jesus isn't questioning the, the relevance of that. He's not even correcting the need to have that in our lives. Instead, he just speaks to it. He says, when you fast, what does he tell us to do when we fast? Don't be like the hypocrites. It's always easy to beat up the hypocrites, isn't it? When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Could you imagine what this might look like? Just you're walking up to church and you go to say, oh, hey, Bob, it's so nice to see you here. And they go to shake your hand. They go, oh, no, oh, sorry, I'm fasting. Right? It's, it's a bit absurd, isn't it? You think, oh, that's just foolish. Why would you do that? I'll tell you why they do that. They love the praise of people. I'll tell you something else. I love the praise of people, and I think you do too. Now, you might not be, you know, as, as overt or difficult in the way that we practice that like the Pharisees might do, but don't just overlook this at how foolish it is. See yourself that, that we do love to be praised and elevated in the eyes of others, but, but Jesus says, They're fasting, but their reward was that moment, and there is nothing else to be gained. That's not what it should be like for you. What should it be like for you and me? When you fast, fasting is going to be a part of it. When you fast, verse 17, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father. I don't think this is like biblical mandate for oil in your skincare routine, if that's a thing you do. Like it's, you know, maybe, maybe there's a YouTube video out there for that. It could be. But I think all he's trying to say is, don't let anyone in. This is between you and the Father. You're not doing this for other people. You're not even really doing this to gain something that you can foster for yourself. No, you're looking eye to eye with the Father who loves you. And notice the language of Father here. Not that you have anything to gain or earn through your fasting. He's already your Father. He already loves you. There's nothing you can do to earn or prove His affection. But when you fast, looking Him in the face, the Father sees you. Verse 18, He's unseen, but He sees what's done in secret. And notice this, He will reward you. God is pleased when we fast, not because it's special or religious, but because he sees one of his beloved turning away from the world and all that it entails and seeking fully after him, not even letting other people into it because because they might pollute the water. This is simply my life turned towards you. That's what fasting is. It's seeking the face of God. And so Jesus is saying, do it in secret. Do it for the Father. He sees you and he loves you. Turn over to chapter 9. And you'll see that second little bit that we read out before. 
Chapter 9, verse 14, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they ask, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? I I read this in two tones. On the one hand, it could be like, hey, come on, man, I'm going to beat you with the religion stick. Why aren't you fasting? You can imagine Jesus copped a bit of that in his time. On the other hand, it's John the Baptist's disciples, not necessarily the Pharisees. They could be saying, hey, you guys are like not even fasting. That seems pretty cool. How do we get in on that? How do we leave behind that pain and that hunger and instead come and do the Jesus thing? This looks like a lot of fun, right? And Jesus doesn't indulge either. Instead, he points to this image of the bridegroom, which is, is a little confusing, but ultimately it makes a lot of sense. He says this, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. I'm sure most of you have been to a wedding. You might be seated with people you don't know or you do know, you love, but you're dressed in your best and they are too and you're sitting around a table and someone brings this juicy steak before you or if you're a vegetarian or vegan, a lovely salad. I'm sure it's delightful and it's just right there in front of you and everyone's sort of just looking around going, whoa, how good is this? And then they look at you and you go, oh, sorry everyone, I'm actually fasting right now. (laughs) How absurd would that be if you heard that at a wedding? I mean, it's not that we laugh at people who fast, but this is a wedding. We don't fast at a wedding, we feast at a wedding. Ultimately, I think what Jesus is saying here, if fasting is seeking the face of God, why would you ever fast when he's standing right in front of you? The purpose that we're here, all of existence has been for this man, Jesus. He's saying, my disciples aren't fasting because I'm right here, but there's a time coming. And this is why it matters for you and I, because the time that's coming is this time. When, yes, God is still near, He's filled us with the Spirit. We are His temples in our bodies. We've already covered that before. But Jesus isn't standing beside us, and the world is still messed up and broken. We're waiting. We're longing. We're anticipating. How does the entire of Scripture end? Come, Lord Jesus, come. That is the cry of the Christian heart. Maybe things are going well for you and you haven't articulated it, but you know deep within you that this is not what there is to be had. There is a brokenness, a pain, a suffering that lies underneath all things, and and we long for God to bring His shalom, to bring His, His restoration and His beauty to this broken world as it should be. Come, Lord Jesus, coming. That is when we will fast, because Jesus is not here, but we're waiting for Him. That's a big part of how Jesus taught us to live. He teaches these parables of servants who fall asleep while they're waiting for their master, and He comes. He's like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm here knocking at the door. Why have you fallen asleep? We can get so complacent, can't we? We can forget that this isn't the point. There's a day coming when it... So fasting here is the people of God who know Jesus, know the bridegroom, and we're waiting for His return. Fasting is seeking the face of God in this moment that we find ourselves in of anticipation, of longing, of desire. Why? I think because it's very easy to get distracted. It's very easy to, to just gather the good that you can find around here and just live your life, even a Christian one, as best as you can. We need to realize that these, these earthly desires, these earthly hungers are nothing because there's something greater to come. We're anticipating Jesus. We're seeking His face. And so fasting, we'll, we'll look in a moment at a couple of different examples and some of the things that come out of that. But right at its heart, we are simply 
the people of God awaiting Jesus, turning our whole selves towards Him, not just praying with our inner life, but, but fasting with our bodies, turning our whole life towards Him, just longing for Jesus to come back, refusing to be, to be satisfied with this world. The disciples of Jesus, they deny themselves. They take up their cross and they follow Him. And fasting is this really quite ordinary, you know, regular part of life where we can say, I will choose you and not this. That's fasting, right at its heartbeat. That's all that we're doing with fasting. It's nothing special, nothing crazy. It's the people of God seeking his face. But sometimes I can feel like a bit of an obligation. You think, okay, I get it. It makes sense. I'm a body. I should hunger for God, but I don't really want to hunger for God. The life's re- Fasting is not just a thing that we do because we should do it. There is third P. There is power in fasting. There's power in fasting. Yes, it is this bodily turning towards God, but as we turn towards God, He meets us in this place. To wrap it up, I've got three quick examples for you. The first is Jesus and the way that He begins His ministry in the world. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 2 should jump up on the screen. It says this, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days He was tempted by the devil. Now, why is Jesus mentioned here as being full of the Holy Spirit? Isn't he God? Doesn't he have power and authority over all things? He's the one who holds it all together, for goodness sake, isn't he? Well, Jesus is God, but he's also chosen to become a man. Philippians 2, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Jesus stepped into the world like you or me. And he did it to live as an ordinary human, but a perfect one. Because his ministry was to represent us as we could never represent ourselves. I used to get a bit confused. Like, why, why would you start your ministry like this, Jesus? You know, you're about to send shockwaves into eternity. And you're going to go hang out in the desert by yourself? This seems a little odd. But then you realize, well, who is Jesus and what is he doing? He's an ordinary man representing us. And so it would make sense that he would come into this place to mark his ministry where he feels all the temptations that we do. Satan comes in and says, hey, do you want some bread? Do you want to go to glory but miss the whole crucifixion bit? I mean, I'd be saying, yeah, that sounds great. Jesus weathers that storm because that's who he has come to be, our representative who never said yes to the temptation. He also came to do battle with Satan. That's where we finish. The whole of the gospel is Jesus crucified on the cross. Satan seemingly just triumphant over the death of the Son of God unwittingly realizes that in the blow I dealt him was the blow I dealt myself. And death was defeated. Sin overcome. Again, this this place of weakness and ordinariness, a Roman cross, became the cosmic battleground where the battle was won. So yes, Jesus in this place of ordinary weakness is beginning the ministry that he will do and carry through to the end that will change all of eternity. Why am I telling you this? Because he goes led by the Spirit, knowing that this is where God wants him to be. He chooses to eat nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Yeah, me too, Jesus. 40 days without food. This is, you know, if, if the ancient world knew about fasting, a 40-day fast is not something you just casually step into for a good time. Jesus has intentionally eyes fixed on this moment where the Spirit is leading him and said, I will fast. This is not an opportunism from Satan being like, all right, he's hungry. Let's get him while he's low. This is the place which seems to be weakness, but ultimately is power. Why? Because in fasting... 
we gain a spiritual clarity as we stand in a broken world. We recognize the forces and the temptations and the difficulties, and instead of going with the flow, we choose to say no. I, I won't say yes to even this hunger because I'm living for something greater. There's a spiritual power here that Jesus is intentionally chosen to fast, to wield in this battle against Satan, not because he is beyond humanity, but because he is a human. And this is how he can do it. And he's saying in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Come and learn how Jesus did it. How does he wander through a broken world dealing with Satan and all that he throws at him? He fasts. There's his power in fasting. Second example, this beautiful woman named Anna in Luke chapter 2, where she's in the temple and, and she encounters Mary and Joseph and the, baby, well, the young child Jesus. So it says, there was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. Pause. Um, implied would be that uh, a Jewish woman, when she married, she would marry young. That was a part of the fabric of their society. So she was married for about seven years before her husband passed, and then she was left alone. Perhaps at this young age, an ordinary woman would then go and find a different husband. Again, it was just a part of the culture. But she radically chose something different. Instead, she goes to the temple and chooses to seek God and turn her life towards God. She's 84 at this point. She's likely been doing this for 50 or 60 years. And the description here is this. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She is an elderly woman in a patriarchal society where she would have not been given a second glance. And God beautifully reveals to her that this is the one we've all been looking for. She is honored and favored in the sight of God in this moment. And a part of what seems to be described to us here is because she was a woman who was leaving behind the deceits and difficulties of the world and just sought the face of the Lord with her entire being. She was a prophet, and yet the prophetic potency that, that's brought forth is from a life of fasting and praying. Because, yes, we all have spiritual gifts, but the voice of the world is very loud, and it's difficult to hear the voice of what God is teaching to us and speaking to us unless we live a life where we quiet those things and seek Him in this place. And fasting and praying together here form this life of seeking after God. I tell you this because whenever you encounter someone early in the Gospels in this life of Jesus that's doing something like this, they're being held up as a picture of faithfulness. Because most of the world, most of the Jewish landscape has missed Jesus entirely. It's these humble, quiet, faithful people who are being held up to us as like, this is what it should look like. And fasting is one of the few things that we're taught about her. Because a personal life of worship here involves prayer and fasting coupled. We should consider that that might need to be a part of personal faithfulness as we seek God. Lastly, there's a communal worship, a communal fasting in Acts chapter 13. The church has exploded in Jerusalem. Pentecost has come. There's fire. There's spirit. The Gentiles are starting to meet Jesus because Cornelius and Peter have had this weird vision moment. And suddenly it's like, okay, this isn't just for the Jews. This is for the Gentiles. 
And now what? That's, that's where we're at. Well, what do we do? Where do we go? How is this going to go forward? And so this is the church sitting in this moment. What do they choose to do? Well, chapter 13, now in the church at Antioch, there were all these prophets and teachers. We won't go through them. And they chose while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. It's just, it's just given to us as a detail because this is just what they did. And they are in this crucial moment, and that's what they choose to do. Were they intentionally fasting that God might reveal something new? Maybe. Maybe if they weren't, this is even more powerful because they weren't using it as a tool to get what they want from God. They were simply doing it out of obedience and worship. Either way, the early church in this pursuit of God intentionally was characterized by fasting. And this is wild. In this place of worshiping the Lord in fasting, the Holy Spirit said, how did he speak? I don't know. <laughs> was it like the PA just cut out and then suddenly the Holy Spirit comes down and you say, oh, hello, this is it, Barnabas. I don't know. I'm not sure. But we're very clear the Spirit spoke. You come to church, I hope, longing to worship and encounter God. Well, here is the early church encountering God in, in radical beauty. And at the heartbeat of that expression and seeking is fasting. They, even after the Spirit speaks, seem to continue fasting and praying because they're just so overjoyed in their worship. So verse, verse 3, they, 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 after they had fasted and prayed, then they placed their hands on them and sent them off. I'd probably hear the Spirit saying, set aside Paul. And I'd be like, all right, Paul, get up the front. Let's lay hands on you. They were still just, we must seek the Lord. We must worship the There's a reverence here, and it's a reverence characterized by fasting in prayer. They're brought together. So I don't think anything I've, I've said this morning, this morning, this evening, is, is particularly radical, apart from the fact that it's unfamiliar. The New Testament is very clear that fasting is a part of, of our spirituality, a part of our communal and personal life together. What are we doing? We're just seeking God, not just with our minds and our hearts, but with our whole self. And we're doing it alone, in the quiet place, the secret place with Jesus. We're also doing it together as a church, as we seek after God. Now, again, I don't know what this might mean for you. Fasting is about hunger, not harm. It could look like something entirely different over here, as it might over there, as it might over here, as it might over there. But what I hope you will leave with is a conviction that this is important. That just the spiritual stuff doesn't matter, but that we, we should actually consider our bodies and turning them towards God. That is a place of spiritual power and indeed perhaps the pivotal piece of the puzzle as we seek spiritual renewal. So to, to wrap it up, let me think about fasting in practice quickly. Our last P. I did a full piece. That's great. Fasting personally. Well, the ancient church has, well, for, for most of church history, fasted either Wednesdays or Fridays. It just featured in their church life together. Um, sometimes both or one or the other. Fridays was especially um, captivating to me because what they would do is they fast through their Friday seeking the face of God and they'd finish their fast in this communal Sabbath feast. They'd let their fasting come to feasting. What they were seeking in God, they then just enjoyed together. And I love that, but we'll talk about that another time. However, they did it. They, they fasted once or twice a week. They did it from sunrise to sunset where they wouldn't break their fast in the morning. Instead, they'd just go through their day until the evening meal. It'd be a simple meal. They'd eat together and that was it. Throughout that day, as we've seen, fasting and prayer are intertwined together. They would turn their hunger into prayer. They would seek after God. It could be as simple as just a minute here or a minute there, pausing in the place of hunger to, to intentionally pray. It could be even just like as you're kind of getting annoyed and hangry with someone, going, 
I'm feeling this because I'm choosing you, Lord. (laughs) If you were here last week to talk about silence and solitude, it often is harder before it gets better. You will feel more hangry before you feel holy, and that's okay, because we're turning to God as we are. And so on that, I would suggest let's walk before we run. Again, if this is just between us and our Father, don't look out there and think about those guys who are doing 21-day fasts and doing it backwards while they've got one leg tied to an aeroplane. I don't know, there's weird stuff out there, man. Don't look around. Just, just consider who you are and where you are right now. Not necessarily even food, something else entirely. Turn to your Father in the secret place. I want to encourage you, think about your personal life, your individual life with God. Fasting could and should be a part of it. That's fasting personally. Let's think about fasting communally. The church in Acts 13 are worshipping with fasting. It was a part of their life together. There are other reasons throughout Scripture for why communities come together and fast, for, for repentance primarily in the Old Testament, for discernment, for longing, for desire. Perhaps there's a, a need for healing, and so we're seeking the face of God together. Perhaps one of us is just desperately crying out with a prayer for God, and we, we gather around that person and we fast together, and we turn this time of prayer for a need, a job, or whatever it might be. All sorts of reasons. I hope we'll think about that when we hit those moments because the church is a family. You can't prescribe this stuff. When you start to feel these needs and moments in life, you go to your pastor, you go to your connect group, and you say, guys, this is where I'm at. Do you think we could fast and pray together? And hopefully they'd be like, absolutely. But what I want to point you to today is this is the beginning of the year of spiritual renewal. We have invited our whole church, the Bridge Church, to stand side by side, brothers and sisters, and give this week to fasting. Now, this could look different for all of us, and this is an invitation, not an expectation. But would you consider spending this week in some form of fasting and prayer, seeking not only your spiritual renewal, but the renewal of our church and the renewal of our society, of our city, of all sorts of things? You might just give up lunch a couple of days and turn out to prayer. You might go the whole shebang and do sunrise to sunset all seven days. You might just go, I'm just throwing my phone in a river and I'll buy a new one when I get out the other end of the week. I don't know, but, but would you join us? Would you make this a part of it as we, as we seek not only to, to pray and, and speak and feel, but we actually just turn our whole self towards God and seek His face? My hunch is that this is going to be a, a place in which God meets us and a place where God enriches us and renews us. So why don't we pray for that right now? Let's pray together. Band, feel free to jump on up. Lord, we are easily distracted and we long for, for more of you and we feel both those things at the same time. We long for this year to be different for us, for our church. Please, God, would you bring spiritual renewal? Would you help us to take this word and and think, how might you help us to turn towards you afresh and anew? Would you help us to clarify some, maybe some of the questions we still have here? Maybe um, work out what works for us and what doesn't work. This is, this is a process, of course, Lord, but, but Lord, please, we just ask, would you meet us here? Would you change us here? Would you transform us here? And would you only strengthen and bolster the light of this city on a hill shining in the darkness of 21st century Sydney? Would we be different as we seek you in this unique way? Lord, we're thankful that you love us as a father and there's nothing we can do to earn your affection. 
But as the people you have called, we ask that you'd show us and help us to turn more and more towards you. And we ask this, that Jesus might gain glory and fame, and that his name might be the name above all names. Amen.